Crime Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temmy, and I'm joined by Andy Leonetti. And now the conclusion. <laughs> nice. And we also have Vedi Himetha. Hello. Okay. Hi, guys. Yes. This is the second part of our Supreme Court wrap-up, apparently. That's what Andy was trying to say, I think. Yeah, we're back. So I guess we, we, oh, we should have done like an epic movie previously on Previously on Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, we talked about Remain in Mexico, the Second Amendment, and Miranda rights. Today we've got three more big cases from the Supreme Court's most recent term that we're going to talk about, starting with the EPA. So, Vedahi, why don't you take it away? It's a grab bag, y'all. We tried to divvy it up by theme. Not very much totally possible here. So it's just a, <laughs> it's, it's a grab bag. So, yeah, we're starting with case that you guys probably have heard, um, making major headlines. It's called West Virginia v. EPA, but it's it's the big EPA decision that's go to drop, essentially, if you've heard of one. And in this one, the court held that the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, exceeded its statutory authority when promulgating a new rule that governs clean power. So there's a lot of backstory to this. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you for our regular people listeners to promulgate Mm -hmm just means to create. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry, it's like, it's just second nature to You me. gotta talk like a human being, baby. God, God. I know. Not all I'm of sorry. us are Not all of us are as smart as you. It's the word of the day. It can be your word of the day, y'all. Because mm. last week's word of the day was prophylactic. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go down the prophylactic. I, I know, I'm sorry. Okay. We're gonna, we're gonna talk like normal people. Um, but this case has a long... This, this rule has sort of a long history between administrations. I know, I know last week, Laura kind of talked about how when in the immigration rules cases were like one administration kind of a very different, like a, you know, like a Republican administration comes in after a liberal one. And then they kind of want to end these rules all the time. This is another sort of example of back and forth between presidential administrations of very different political ideologies trying to like have their last word when it comes to uh, an agency rule. So here, back in 2014, under the Obama admin, the EPA, now I can't even think of a synonym for promulgate, the EPA like put out or tried to put out the what's called the Clean Power Plan rule. And that tackles carbon dioxide emissions from existing power plants that are fired with coal or natural gas. But of course, government agencies can't just issue, there's there's a synonym, issue any old rule about anything if they don't have the authority to do so. So to cite a basis for the authority to create this rule, the EPA cited the Clean Air Act, which has been around forever, specifically Section 111, which is called the New Source Performance Standards Program, but it does also authorize the regulation of certain pollutants from existing sources, such as power plants under subsection D. And under this provision, although it's left to the states to set the actual enforceable rules that govern these existing sources, it's the EPA that gets to determine the admissions limit with which they will have to comply. And in making this determination, the EPA arrives at that limit, they calculate that limit for each existing source by determining what's called the the BSER, the best system of emission reduction that has been adequately demonstrated for that source. So sounds like an awesome government acronym. (laughs) It's a pretty good one. The there's no there's no good way to pronounce it that I can think of. Bezer. Um 
the the BSER, I will just say, is it's a way of essentially reducing emissions that's unique to each source. And so the limit that is set for each source is also unique to each source. It's gonna that limit is gonna reflect the amount of pollution reduction like achievable when that BSER is applied, if that makes sense. I hope I didn't just lose everybody. <laughs> but it's not that important. <laughs> Um, one thing to note is that before this, the EPA had rarely used this provision. Um, another thing that I will just mention that I hopefully won't put everyone to sleep is they're, they're, the system that, they're, that the EPA is saying um, to use here is what they call generation shifting. And it's not as complicated as it sounds. It, it literally just means what it says, generation shifting. It reduces the hours of operation at certain power plants like coal plants, and thereby reduces their emissions, right? You, you're just reducing your overall output. And so, mm-hmm. so the EPA can choose whether to require anything from a little generation shifting to a lot of generation shifting. And so it settled on what it regarded as a reasonable amount of shift, which it based on modeling how much more electricity both natural gas and renewable sources could supply without causing undue cost increases or reducing overall power supply. But it determined that for coal plants, it would require quite a lot of generation shifting in order to be compliant here. And so the government projected that this rule that the EPA was trying to impose would impose billions of compliance costs, um, raise retail electricity prices, it would require the retirement of dozens of coal plants and eliminate tens of thousands of jobs. So I guess it's a pretty big deal, and this was sort of the reason that in 2016, SCOTUS stayed this act. It stayed the Clean Power Plan from coming into effect, and and then it was later repealed after Trump went into office. So now... Yeah, that was something I wanted to ask you about. Since this case was about a rule that never went into effect and then was repealed, did the did the court say anything about what how this case is not moot like why was it not dismissed well so when so so then biden when he came into office he tried to reintroduce it that's what we're dealing with now yeah okay. yeah so i don't I, got it i could okay. be wrong but i don't think it was like a big deal when trump was around because they were trying to reintroduce it i i my understanding mm-hmm. is that it's only recently <laughs> not exactly a pro-environment administration <laughs> i guess trump was more or less okay with coal plants doing what they're doing um, and then Biden comes in and he's trying to make it, trying to revive it, um, even though it was never, even though it was okay. never I- imposed. Got it. Okay. So then, so then the same issue rises again before the court that sort of like on pause during Trump's administration, right? So SCOTUS now basically determined that this res- that this rule with the resulting restrictions on coal plants, it would carry consequences of economic and political significance. And so the court found that this rule triggered what we probably have heard as be called the major questions doctrine. And we should we should pause for a second to talk about that because it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big part of this decision isn't even really about the implications for climate issues specifically, but really applies broadly to any sort of agency rulemaking. Man, Joe is missing another great episode where he would have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a buzz phrase y'all have probably heard and likely remember from law school, the major questions doctrine. And it's this idea, this doctrine is a pretty conservative legal idea. And it's kind of says that federal agencies 
need explicit authorization from Congress to decide issues of, quote, major economic and political significance. Now, this language has been quoted and requoted so many times. Look, for those of y'all that have better things to do in life than read Supreme Court opinions all day, this is a thing they do. <laughs> they basically, basically, appellate courts are the original Twitter, and legal doctrines are the original retweet. So this language, <laughs> like many doctrines, has been quoted by all kinds of SCOTUS cases regarding agency rulemaking. Notably, King v. Burwell, which y'all maybe remember as the case that kind of preserved Obamacare, sort of. But that is a whole rabbit hole that we will not get into. <laughs> I won't go there. Well, and more recently, this is the doctrine that was, that was used to strike down the CDC's eviction mm-hmm. moratorium. Yeah. And, and, the, and the Biden administration's yeah, the vaccine OSHA, mandate. Yeah, the OSHA vaccine yep. mandate, yep. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So it's it's been around in all kinds of different decisions. And originally the quote comes from a 2000 case so it's not even that new, called uh, FDA v. Brown and Williamson Tobacco Corp. And I bring this up only because that was a case in which SCOTUS used the same doctrine, the major questions doctrine, to say that the FDA did not have the authority under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act to regulate tobacco products as either drugs or devices, since the FDA was trying to make rules about marketing tobacco to kids and teens. And of course, mm-hmm. that case was overturned by a later case saying that the FDA did have this authority. But like the pattern you'll see is generally it's it's a doctrine that really curtails what federal agency can do. Mm-hmm. And it follows from the premise that Congress, as the Supreme Court put it in a 2001 decision, does not alter the fundamental details of a regulatory scheme in vague terms or ancillary provisions. It does not one might say, hide elephants in mouse holes. This is the famous elephants in mouse holes (laughs) quote. So basically, it's saying Congress should have explicitly given delegations of authority to an agency in order for there to be one. But that's not what they do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, yeah, it it kind of goes against this idea of, of delegating power to an agency. It's like, okay, you can delegate power to an agency, but... The agency can't make any of its own decisions, sort of thing. Yeah, it's not really deferential to agency expertise. I know, I know. This is a, this becomes a politically very, very contentious. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're we're relying anyways, on like the most worthless legislative body in the world right now to actually like answer <laughs> some of these <laughs> questions, either pro or con, you know, for or against or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. the, like I'm not. Whenever I gripe about like Congress. Laying that light, laying, more about their feet laying dragging. down on the job. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're making decisions that I disagree with. It's that they're making no decisions. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of efficiency, yep. like agencies just have a lot more bandwidth and expertise to do some stuff, and it's just like let them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't try to micromanage Congress. Okay. Sorry. I don't need to get my political opinions on on air. But basically, in this case, to wrap it up, like. SCOTUS determined that since the major questions doctrine was triggered here, a clear statement is necessary for a court to conclude that Congress intended to delegate this authority, since it's such a broad, consequential result. Um, And essentially, for an agency to take what the court considered to be a sweeping action, it needed that explicit delegation, and it didn't find any. Mm -hmm. And so, again, the most significant takeaway of the opinion is the court's elaboration of this major questions doctrine. It's a limit on federal agency regulatory authority. And Chief Justice Roberts' majority of opinion 
held that in certain extraordinary cases where we have, like, again, these, this, where an agency is trying to assert broad authority of economic and political significance, courts should look for a clear statement of congressional authorization before greenlighting an action. So, yeah, basically... Clear as mud, folks. <laughs> yep. We, yeah, they, they, they nixed the rule here, and so... Um, can mm-hmm. the court was basically like, okay, you can do something that's like less significant EPA. Like you can, what what the rule that you're trying to do would just be too costly and too sweeping, too transformative of a measure. You you got to mm-hmm. do something either that's smaller potatoes or not doing anything at all. <laughs> yeah. So. To which the right. EPA said, well, what can we do to be that <laughs> mm-hmm. would be less? And the Supreme Court replied, well, if you don't know, we're not going to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pretty. Yeah, pretty much. Like I know that this is already being sort of pointed to that this will likely be a challenge for the EPA's new tailpipe emission standards, and I think the SEC also had a proposal to require publicly traded companies to disclose yeah. greenhouse gas emissions, but that's probably out the window now too. But again, it 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 has huge implications outside of the environmental realm. Yeah, absolutely. The administrative state as a whole has just been put on has just been put on notice by the new uh, Mm -hmm. by the new court majority. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's uh, so that's fun. That's all I have. That's all I have to say about this. Like, (laughs) yeah. Oh well, one more thing I wanted to add. I'm so sorry. One more thing I wanted to add. Um, Real, real quick to tie this one up. So. Yeah, I don't have much more to say about this case, except for it really feels like the Supreme Court just made this up um, in a way. <laughs> the major questions doctrine is, is pretty new, mm-hmm. and I know it's been thrown around a lot, but like the Supreme Court seems to have just like made it up this millennium, and there's really not a lot of like... There's like the whole separation mm-hmm. of powers argument, maybe, but yeah, it, it's it's kind of like... The, the Supreme Court seems to be able to like use it when it's in their favor, and they're, they're not supposed to be political or partisan. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's not consistently applied. Let's just put it that way. I mean, the obviously the Supreme Court takes on cases mm-hmm. in all sorts of different areas of law, which makes for an interesting time when they release all their opinions. But it makes it hard oh, to do yeah. segues, so I'm just gonna not do <laughs> one, and we're just gonna pivot to the case that I'm gonna talk about, which pivot. is. Pivot! We're not moving a couch up the stairs. I'm talking about native sovereignty. Um, so, yeah, I'm talking about Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta. Um, this was another, it, I would call it a, a reversal without being a complete overturn of precedent. This case very much changed the power dynamic between state governments, the federal government, and tribal governments. The sort of factual background here is in 2015, Victor Castro Huerta was convicted of child neglect, and this this defendant was not native, but his stepdaughter, who was five at the time, is native. She was a member of the Cherokee Nation, and they lived in Tulsa, which, under the Supreme Court's decision in 2020, McGirt versus Oklahoma, is recognized as reservation land, which I just want to make a quick note here. The court refers to reservation lands as Indian country, And that's because that's the term used in the statute at issue in this case. So that's what I'm talking when I'm if I say that I'm referring to reservation land. Um, I understand all of the sort of other 
complicated things that come into that sort of terminology, but that's just, that's what's in the statute. So that's kind of what we have to deal with. So when Castro Huerta appealed his conviction, he argued that the Supreme Court's decision in McGirt meant that the state did not have jurisdiction in his case. So I have to back up a little bit here and talk about McGirt versus Oklahoma, where, and you may have heard of this case, sort of, not for the wrong reason, but the the part of this case that made the most headlines was the fact that Justice Gorsuch posited that much of the eastern half of Oklahoma is actually still reservation land, in his opinion, in this case. The actual holding was that crimes committed on tribal lands must be prosecuted by either tribal or federal authorities and not the state government. And these conclusions could definitely impact how the state government regulates a large portion of the state, but Oklahoma's governor has focused a lot more on the lawlessness that in his mind would undoubtedly occur if criminal jurisdiction was taken away from the from the state. And so he lobbed, he... He's been throwing spaghetti at the wall for two years trying to find a case to basically get McGirt overturned. And the Court of Appeals in Castro Huerta's case agreed that McGirt controlled in this and they vacated his conviction. I will note, this guy did not just get released back into the population. He once, as soon as that state conviction was vacated, he was immediately charged by the federal authorities and found guilty. So It's not this catch and release thing that people are are making it out to be. But the state appealed to the Supreme Court and basically without completely overturning McGirt, the majority led by Justice Kavanaugh held that, quote, Indian country within a state's territory is part of a state, not separate from a state. Now, that's interesting because that's that's the complete opposite of what sort of native law scholars have thought to be true for many, many years. So therefore, the majority's conclusion was that the Constitution requires that the state has the ability to exercise criminal jurisdiction. I will note that this decision technically only impacts the state's ability to prosecute non-natives for crimes committed on reservation land, but it does seem to signal a pretty big shift in the way that the courts are going to address cases involving native oh, yeah, sovereignty. And in, in jurisprudence, like, I'm oh, sorry, not jurisprudence, jurisdiction this is actually huge it's like mm-hmm. how would you it feel is, yeah. like if you were in texas and you woke up and now the supreme court had decided your territory is part of louisiana yeah it's big and well, and, and it was interesting because um justice gorsuch who wrote the uh, the opinion in mcgirt which again this this case didn't completely overturn it but it definitely rolled back a lot of what was in mcgirt and justice gorsuch wrote a dissent in this case where he goes back to this this thing that he did in the majority of McGirt, where he talks about the the sort of history of the relationship between native tribes and the federal government, which it would be a huge understatement for me to say that that relationship has not been good. And so part of Justice Gorsuch's whole thing in McGirt was holding the holding the government to its promises and the treaty that they were dealing with in that case as far as anybody can tell, Still in place. gave this land, yes, gave this land to the Creek Nation and was never overturned. But now this new case is basically saying, well, okay, that might be true, but the state should still be able to prosecute people for crimes committed on reservation lands. It, I had a hard time following Kavanaugh's logic, honestly. Hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> Should we transition? That's all there? I got. That's <laughs> you know, that's that's basically it. <laughs> yeah. And I'll wrap up the party here with the Supreme Court definitely laid down another large marker when it comes to religious freedom at the end of the term Mm -hmm. as well with with two big cases. First one I'm going to talk about is Carson v. Macon. This this has to do with a, a program that's specific to the state of Maine that provides funding for students in rural counties to, if their county doesn't actually have a secondary school the state gives you money to attend either the nearest public school or attend a private school and that is essentially the state saying like we are fulfilling our duty to provide you with a free public education even if you even if the closest school is a private school because i guess it's Um, cheaper for them than establishing but what they didn't do what the state did not do is allow families to use this assistance program for private religious schools because in their view that would run afoul of the first amendment's establishment clause saying congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion however Mm. what the court found was that in trying to uphold the establishment clause the state then violated people's free exercise, which is the second half of that sentence, which is Mm -hmm. that I left hanging off there, which is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, comma, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Oh, yes. The classic exercise versus establishment battle. We see this a lot. Yeah, it comes up all the time. What happened in this case was that Chief Justice Roberts, again, writing for the majority, argued that refusing to allow students to use a public benefit based on religious curriculum, was a violation of free exercise. He wanted to know whether Maine would distinguish between a faith-based school taught according to, you know, its specific religious tenets and one that was, quote, religious, but taught students in a religiously neutral way. And the lawyers for arguing the case for the state of Maine in front of the Supreme Court said, yes, we would make a distinction there. And according to the majority... They cannot make that distinction. They found that the policy was essentially more stringent than the Establishment Clause requires. Since they weren't directly funding religious schools, they were only giving the money to kids and their families to Mm -hmm. use to maybe attend a religious school, and so the state could not withhold that money. Mm -hmm. The dissent amongst the uh, the liberal three... um, (laughs) Should surprise surprise no one, this was a 6-3. This was another (laughs) 6-3 decision. Yeah. Steve, uh, Justice Breyer argued that the court had essentially mandated that schools provide the funding. Um, and in Breyer's view, that's, you know, not required. He's saying states should have the option of funding or not funding. They, there's a difference between being allowed to fund students who want to, being allowed to fund students to attend a religious school. And the court was ordering essentially Maine to fund people to attend religious schools. Breyer essentially in the dissent basically argued that there should be a little more basically wiggle room. Uh, He he said leaving quote room at the joints Mm -hmm. when, when weighing uh, competing priorities in, in this issue. I will note though, however, that in doing this, that the state, cannot favor one religion over another. So right. so if private Christian schools can receive public benefits, so too, you know, Muslim schools, Jewish 
private Jewish schools, private Muslim schools, private Buddhist schools, mm-hmm. any any other. So that's that. And then in the other case, also related to education, we talked about this. We talked about this in a prior episode a couple months back, which was about which was Kennedy v. Bremerton, which was this was the case of the football coach, the public school assistant football coach who prayed on the field, and uh, essentially mm-hmm. that case also came down to the fact of the school thought that they were that they were trying to avoid running afoul of the establishment clause by. Right in effect, essentially condoning this coach's prayer on the field. But what the justices, what the justices again said, what the big six said again (laughs) was, was that they, in doing so, they violated the football coach's free exercise rights. Right. And free speech, right? Also. That seems to be. Yes. Yeah. That seems to be a bit of a trend in, oh gosh, I don't know, probably the last five years or so that the Supreme Court seems to pretty consistently emphasize the free exercise clause over the yeah. establishment clause. Yep. As Andy sort of alluded to in the, in the other case where it's like you can't distinguish between religion, religious schools, I think it's important to know that the establishment clause doesn't just say you can't favor you know Islam over Buddhism or one religion over another. It also says that you can't favor any sort of religiosity over lack of religiosity or, you know, you Mm -hmm. can't promulgate like religiousness in general. Right. Yeah. It's we, sometimes you hear it called the freedom from Mm -hmm. religion. That's sort of implied in, in the first amendment. Yeah. Yeah. Two big cases right here at the end of the term that kind of showed where they're, where they're leaning on future cases Mm -hmm. that are going to, that are inevitable that that this court will inevitably take up and uh, probably yeah. yeah what a party this was gang it's a Breyer's <laughs> retirement party right it is Breyer's retirement party <laughs> happy retirement and, and congratulations to the new uh, new justice Katanji Brown Jackson yes welcome to the court uh, have fun I guess <laughs> And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com.